Our gospel reading for this third Sunday of Advent is Matthew chapter 11. Hear now God's holy word. When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of woman, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, cause our hearts to rest in you today by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see all of the ways the kingdom is coming forth. Show us all of the ways that the Lord Jesus is reigning and ruling over this creation, over his church by word and sacrament, and in the world defeating and crushing all of the works of Satan. Give us hearts to rejoice in this. Give us hands and feet to join in his work. Father, bless us this day once again with rest in our spirits and comfort in knowing the great and mighty works you are accomplishing in the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. People of God, one of the great prominent themes of the season of Advent is waiting. And that does not seem like something that's particularly fun or exciting to think about or talk about. We don't like Waiting. Waiting is difficult, but throughout the scripture readings and throughout the hymns and throughout the psalms that we sing in the Advent season, we have heard that God has made promises to draw near to us. He has made promises to deliver us and defend us, to judge the world, to bring justice and healing. And we, in response to these promises, are to wait. We're to wait faithfully. We're to wait patiently. We're to wait hopefully, on those promises. And so it's wonderful that this is such a prominent theme at a time of the year where we end up doing a, a lot of waiting. If you've been to the store to pick up a present for your beloved, you have stood in a line and you've had to exercise patience when there are 27 people in line and there's only one register open on a Saturday in the Christmas shopping season. You think, have, have you, is this your first time to be open on a Saturday during the Christmas season? Can you open up another register? No, we gotta wait. We gotta exercise patience. If you've had the misfortune of visiting the post office, you've waited in lines that have put Disney World to shame over the last few weeks, especially if you go to this one down here, which I think they're going for a world record on lines out there. If you avoid the stores, if you avoid the post office and you do your shopping online, you still have to wait for your stuff to arrive and you hope, there's another great Advent theme, you hope that it comes and it is as described on the website that you ordered it from. You wait and hope that it gets there on time. 
just in time for you to wrap it and have it ready for Christmas. And above all, in the season of waiting, the youngest of us are waiting, waiting for Christmas morning, waiting for the end of the school year, waiting for the great celebration that's coming. I bet every kid in here knows how many days it is to Christmas. Does anybody not know? Does anybody not got it? You know, if you do the math, it's like 15 days, but you can't count Christmas, right? So it's more like 14 days. You don't count today. It's like 13 days, really, right? If you get down to it, it's about 13 days till Christmas. But what is it like to wait on something, to get your hopes up for something that, that ends up falling flat? To hope for something that ends up disappointing you. You've, you've heard great things about something and somebody is, has told you, boy, you, you need to try this and you've tried it and it, and it wasn't that great. You, you hear about a great restaurant in town and it's hard to get a reservation, but you finally, you, you make it work out, all the stars align, you get a babysitter, you go, you try this great restaurant that everybody's talking about, and you sit down and it's fine, it's okay, but, it, but it's not really that amazing. Or you wait, you wait for a movie. You think, oh, this book that I love is finally being turned into a movie, or it's a sequel to one of your favorite movies. You watch and you rewatch the trailer. Oh, this is gonna be so good, I'm gonna get tickets, we're gonna be there on opening night. And then 20 minutes into the film, you're like, Oh, this is kind of boring. This is not what I was looking forward to. This is not what I thought it would be. What a letdown. We've all gotten our hopes up and we've all been let down. And so in addition to this Advent emphasis on waiting, on preparation, on anticipation, we also have to fight cynicism. We have to fight the gnawing doubt and fear that what we're waiting for, when it comes to all these promises we've been reading about these last few weeks, when it comes to the promises about the coming of Messiah and the work of Messiah to judge and rule the world, we have to fight the cynicism and the doubt that says those things might not happen. I mean, we've been let down before, right? We've got our hopes up only to have those hopes dashed before. It wouldn't be the first time if it happened again. Is Jesus really going to accomplish all that the scriptures say he is going to do? Or am I waiting for nothing? Am I praying and hoping for nothing? Am I going to be disappointed and I'm getting my hopes up only to have those hopes dashed? Well, we hear a little bit of this worry and a little bit of the same concern in John's question to Jesus in our gospel reading from Matthew today. The gospel readings, as you've seen throughout Advent so far, they spend a fair amount of time with John the Baptist. We get to know John the Baptist through the gospel readings throughout the Advent season. And this is important because John's whole life was about the preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus. He prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist was the last prophet of the old covenant who foretold Messiah's coming. So not only was John the Baptist the forerunner of Jesus, we also know he was the cousin of Jesus. Their mothers, Elizabeth and Mary, were friends who shared these very special pregnancies together. And this means that growing up, John and Jesus would have seen each other often. They would have seen each other every year on feast days and for weddings and for other family gatherings. The point is that Jesus and John knew each other well. And so when John sees Jesus at the Jordan River and he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he knows that this is the one with whom he has been rejoicing, the one 
to whom he's been pointing all of his life, the one he has been praising even before his birth, remember, John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God. This is his cousin who he has known and who he has pointed to as the anointed of God. This, this relationship adds a little humor to their exchange when John says, oh, 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 you've got this backwards. Jesus, you're supposed to baptize me, right? That's the way it works. Hey, I, I think we can pull this off. I, I don't think anybody heard your question. You baptize me first, right? I should be baptized by you. So John has spent his whole life anticipating what the reign of Messiah would look like. John has spent, has invested, has poured his entire life into preaching about the judgment that Messiah is going to bring. And now in Matthew 11, as John sits in a prison, unjustly in prison, by the way, for calling out the, uh, the adultery of Herod, John sits in prison and he gets reports about what Jesus has been doing. And John is wondering, wait a minute, when does he start to bring about the change that I was preaching about? When does he bring about the judgment that I said he's going to come and bring? Last week, we read John's withering message about how Jesus is going to come and chop down the unfaithful, unfruitful trees. Remember that? When does this happen, John says? When does he clear out the threshing floor? When do the prisoners get released? Well, things are not going quite the way that John had planned and not quite the way he had expected. And so John wants to know, am I going to be disappointed here? Is this, did I get this right? Did I get my hopes up in the wrong direction? Jesus is asked by John's disciples, are we waiting for another one who will bring our exile to an end? Or, or if it is Jesus, then when does this happen? Uh, are you doing this or are we waiting for another? John asked. Now, I, I realize we just read the same story about six months ago in our study of Luke's gospel. So I'm not going to go back. Luke tells this very same account. And uh, I'm not going to go back through everything we covered a few months back. But I do want to take another look at Jesus's answer wearing our Advent glasses, if we could, and think about Jesus's answer in relationship to the other things that we've read and heard this morning. Because John's response to Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus's response to John is an echo of what Isaiah said. It's an echo of Psalm 146, and it helps us look forward to our epistle reading in James as well. So that's the context in which I want to read and hear this this morning. And Jesus's answer to John, Jesus answers John in a very kind and straightforward way. And he tells John's disciples, he says, go back and tell John what you have heard and what you have seen. What have they heard? What have they seen? Well, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What, what Jesus is asking John to recall, what Jesus is communicating through John's disciples to go back and tell John is that what the older prophets have said concerning me is happening. The prophets have said a lot about what I'm going to do. When Israel's God visits her, certain things are going to take place. And now the, the message is to John, look, John, there's no room for doubt. 
There's no room for worry or concern. You haven't gotten your hopes up for nothing, John. The part of the mission of Messiah that you focused on, John, the judgment, that is coming. But there are other features of Messiah's reign that are in full force. And you need to acknowledge and rest in all that I am doing. The whole plan is unfolding. All of the promises are being realized. And that's what Jesus sends the disciples back to John with, with that message. And what Jesus says when he references um, Isaiah 35 there, he says, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. That, that Isaiah 35 was our, our Old Testament lesson for today. So I wanna, I wanna run back to Isaiah 35 and spend a few minutes there because as usually is the case, Whenever someone in the New Testament, be it the Apostle Paul or Peter or James or Jesus, whenever they quote the Old Testament, it's like they're reaching back and not just grabbing the couple of verses that they referenced, but they're grabbing the whole context. They're grabbing everything. So if we get one quote from one part of Jonah, what Jesus is actually asking you to do, he's asking you to recall the whole story of Jonah. Or when Paul talks about Abraham, he's asking, I, I, I'm just quoting this little part, but I don't want you to think in, in these little things. I want you to go back and grab the whole story of Abraham and pull it on through and meditate on the whole story as you think about what I'm telling you now. So Jesus, in his response to John, he, he references this part of Isaiah. And so we're going to do that very thing. We're going to reach back and grab everything that Isaiah was saying and bring it up into hearing what, what John is, is supposed to hear. So, so what, what we heard in, in Matthew 11 is that Jesus wants John to recall everything. It's because here, Isaiah presents both sides of Messiah's work, the purifying and the restoration, the judgment and the blessing. In fact, where we started in chapter 35, it's really kind of in the middle of a sentence. You need to go back a couple of chapters because Isaiah, by, by chapter 35, Isaiah is wrapping up a long section on the terrors of God's judgment against the wicked. So if you're following along, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna run back to chapter 33 and I'm gonna um, hop, hop through here to give you kind of the sense of what Isaiah is talking about by uh, chapter 35. So in 33, here's what uh, Isaiah says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah writes, woe to you who plunder though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of all dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. And then, and then we have this, this um, description of the coming judgment of God. In verse 14, we can pick it up. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, he who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. This is the very same stuff we sing about in the Magnificat. The mighty are brought down from their thrones and God exalts those of low degree. God exalts the righteous. God exalts the one who won't take a bribe, who doesn't deal unrighteously. Verse 19, uh, Isaiah says, you will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, 
of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor any of its cords be broken. A, 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 a feature of the covenant is that you will live in the land and you'll dwell in the land. You won't be taken into captivity so long as you obey, so long as you keep the covenant. This covenant is conditional. If you fall off into idolatry, this, this stuff falls apart. If, if you go after other gods, this stuff is not going to, uh, to be kept together. And this is what Isaiah is preaching. Verse uh, chapter 34 then. Um, Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of Yahweh is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and their mountains shall be melted with their blood. This is language that John the Baptist was comfortable with. This is the language that John had been, had been using and preaching. And what follows from there is this language of decreation. Isaiah describes everything being torn down to the bedrock. As we saw last week, the, the trees are cut down to their stumps. And now we're getting closer to the section that Jesus quoted. What comes after, we saw last week, what comes after the trees getting cut down to the stumps, the unfruitful trees getting cut down, what happens? Well, out of the stump, a stem of Jesse grows, right? Well, in this, in this language, now, now Isaiah is talking about the decreation of, of everything. And what do we expect to happen? Well, we expect there to be blooming. We expect there to be blossoming once again. And that's what we get in uh, chapter 35, which we heard earlier. Chapter 35, Isaiah says, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of Yahweh, the excellency of our God. And the message here is that God's final word isn't destruction. His final word isn't elimination, but his purpose is that all of creation be restored and redeemed. Therefore, do not lose heart, Isaiah says. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This is the very thing that John needs to hear, right? In prison, John needs to hear this very message. And this is what Jesus is calling on him to recall by referencing Isaiah. Don't fear. God's salvation of the world is near. And the way you know that, John, is that all of these things Isaiah said will happen are happening before your eyes. And that's where Isaiah says the eyes of the blind will be open. The ears of the death shall be unstopped. The, the lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb sing. Waters burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. So Isaiah says that what God is going to do, what God is going to accomplish when he comes to you is going to result in such great healing, such great restoration such great wholeness that the world is like a desert 
compared to what it's going to be, the garden that it's going to be under his reign. And so by grabbing this Isaiah text in answering John, Jesus is saying this program that Isaiah talks about, this plan to restore the whole earth, the plan to turn the earth from a wilderness into a paradise, Jesus says that begins with me. That begins right now. This is not something that's supposed to happen 10 million years into the future. This is not something that is some far-flung fantasy, some, some pipe dream that may or may not happen. We can get our hopes up, but you know, really, that's not the way things work. No, what Jesus is doing by quoting Isaiah is saying, John and disciples and apostles, I want you to listen and I want you to get this, that what Isaiah talked about is happening before your eyes. I'm starting this project right now the project to restore all of the world, to turn the wilderness into a paradise, to turn the desert into a garden. The Psalm that we read this morning together repeats the very same themes. Um, He starts, the Psalmist says, don't put your trust in princes. And remember in that Matthew passage I read, Jesus talks about reeds. What, What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Remember when we studied this in Luke, I said that Herod's nationalistic symbol was a reed. He had a reed printed on all of his coins. He had reeds sewn, embroidered into everything. And and Jesus is taking a little jab at Herod there. What did you go out to see when you you went out to John? A reed shaken by the wind? Uh, A man clothed in garments? What did Jesus say? Did you see a man uh, clothed in soft garments like those who hang around the king's houses? The psalmist says, those guys that Jesus mocks, Don't put your trust in them. Don't put your hope in them. They can't help you. They're going to die just like you are. And when they die, all of their grandiose plans perish. The psalmist in Psalm 146 then says, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in Yahweh his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Put your ultimate hope in the creator God. Pledge your allegiance to him alone. Why? The psalmist has. Why, what is he able to do? Well, he executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, freedom to the prisoners. He opens the eyes of the blind. So the psalmist echoes all of these things that Isaiah said Messiah will do when he comes to visit Israel. All these things that Jesus tells John that he is doing. All these things that he continues to do through his body, the church, which are still signs of his coming today. So when we read promises like this, as we just have read from Matthew, from Isaiah, from Psalm 146, when we hear these things, let us never forget that the health and the ease and the peace that you and I enjoy every day, these are the results of the impact of Christian uh, culture upon Western civilization. The peace and the prosperity that you enjoy is the result of centuries of Christendom and its impact upon Western civilization. Who is turning back the curse against the ground? Who has given us advances in agriculture so that we have so much food that we can't eat it all? We let food go to waste, we have so much food. Who does this? Jesus. Who advances and matures culture so that many of us have the, have the, have the blessing of not doing back-breaking labor? 
but we get to use machines to do our work for us. We get to use these tools. Who gives us these things? Who gives us this ability? Jesus. Who turns back the curse of sickness and disease and deformity so that we can live longer, comfortable lives? It is Jesus. Who has given us the ability to raise the level of learning and literacy so that we can love the word, so we can be people of the word and we can use language and use language to understand math? It's Jesus. Who has packed the world with mystery and wonder? Who has given us secrets to discover and explore and unfold? Who inspires us in the scientific pursuit of understanding all of these things in this amazing universe? Who does this? It's Jesus. It is the Christian pursuit and the Christian mission to preach the gospel in such a way that the whole world is transformed just as Isaiah described it. This... The, that, that the gospel is preached in such a way, that the gospel is lived in such a way that suffering is eased, that the hungry are fed, that the sick are healed. And you know, the fact is the gospel has been so effective in the West that now even the blessings of Christendom overflow to pagan nations as well. And pagan cultures have been improved and have been lifted. And in places where the gospel has never been uh, has never been allowed to take root in places of the world where the church has never found footing. People generally live very short, harsh, brutal lives. The, the despots and the tyrants live a little bit better than they be, by taking advantage of everybody else. But generally speaking, apart from the gospel, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of men, all of these deliverances that Jesus talks about, all of these things that Isaiah writes about and the psalmist sings about, all of these deliverances from blindness and darkness and brutality, all of these healings and restorations and comforts, apart from the gospel, these are foreign concepts to mankind. The fact that you and I can wake up this morning and not worry about somebody just uh, breaking down our doors and taking everything from us, that we don't, we don't live with that fear every day as you would in a place where that was under the total darkness of paganism. I mean, are you scared of anybody eating you, you know, if you go out later? No, we're not. But you know, in, in times in history, in brutal periods where, where the darkness of paganism has reigned over cultures and men and nations, you do worry about that. You can't call anything your own because everything might just be taken from you. Everything goes to the strongest and the person with the most swords and the, and the, and the, and the tyrant and the bully. You see, the fact that we live with peace and the fact that we have property and the fact that we can walk and live safely, we, we owe this to the impact of the gospel upon our culture. And as, and as Western nations now turn back to paganism, as, as we go back to secularism, as we reject the one who gave us all of these unimaginable benefits, as we reject him, what do we do? We slip back into that brutality. We go back to cruelty and darkness and God sends wicked invaders to, to, uh, to undermine us and tear us apart, just as he did with Israel. God, God puts us under the oppressive rule of tyrants, just as he did with Israel. And it's only as the nations repent and remember who brought us to the dance, who brought us to all of these advancements and blessings. It's only as we remember him that we are healed. The reformation of 
the nations begins then with the reformation of the church. The culture can never be renewed unless the church is renewed. And the church is renewed as she recovers her function and role in the world. She's the body of Christ. She's the bride of Christ. He ministers to her by word and sacrament. And through her presence in the world, he destroys the works of the devil. Jesus destroys the effects of the fall. He repeals the curses of broken covenants in his work on the cross. And through the church, he brings healing to the nations. Now let's just stop and focus for just a minute or two on this healing language that Jesus uses. Because it struck me this week as I read this, you know, you read something once, you say, that's interesting. You read it a couple of times, you say, wow, that's important. You read it three or four times and it finally starts to hit you. Maybe God is saying something here. Maybe, maybe this is something I don't stop and think about. And that's one of, I had one of those thoughts this week on this healing language in, in our readings today, Jesus uses it, Isaiah uses it, the psalmist uses it. Listen and think about this. Jesus comes preaching the gospel and healing the sick. And when Jesus comes and works, the deaf and the blind and the lame and the leper and the demon possessed all crowd to him. They, they all press him. And, and then he turns and pours out his compassion and healing on them. And when he, when he heals them, it does a number of wonderful things. It, it demonstrates his power, certainly. It reveals him to be a tender shepherd who cares about suffering. And it proves to everyone that the kingdom of God is arriving because it fulfills what Isaiah said he would do and the other prophets. Israel when Jesus comes, Israel is suffering under the curses of breaking the old covenant. And now Jesus is here to lift the curse. Jesus is here to renew the world according to God's plan. So what is Jesus? He preaches the gospel and he heals the sick. And through preaching the gospel and healing the sick, he brings renewal to Israel. In line with this, he sends out his 12 apostles. And what does he tell them to do? Two principal things. He says, preach the gospel and heal the sick. And then he sends out 70 disciples with instructions to do what? Preach the gospel and heal the sick. And after his ascension, and after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, what does the church continue to do in the book of Acts? Well, they preach the gospel and they heal the sick. Now, now Jesus and the apostles had some extraordinary authority. God gave them extraordinary authority over disease and they worked in miraculous ways. But it's rather striking that from the ministry of Elijah forward, a sign of God's salvific work in the world is healing. The church has taken this seriously throughout her history. It's the church throughout the centuries that saw it as her responsibility. The church saw it as her responsibility to care for the sick. And so they started hospitals in, in various cities. You still find, you know, Baptist hospital and Methodist hospital. I think there's a Presbyterian hospital in uh, Charlotte. Both my kids were born in Catholic hospitals. Why? Why, why, why have churches started hospitals throughout history? How is that part of our mission? Well, because they see this is an outworking of the church's care for the sick and our understanding that we are caring for the healing mission that Jesus started. Now, here we find ourselves today where 
many of our countrymen and many people in our society and culture have turned healthcare into this idol where, where healthcare offers its own kind of salvation apart from Jesus. And I don't know if you've known many people like this, I certainly have, who, who don't need Jesus. They just need the right pill. They just need the right doctor. They just need the right therapy. I don't need, I don't really need Jesus. And so they have turned it into uh, their own plan of salvation. They look to medicine apart from Jesus for their salvation. And now the church has turned the whole sphere of medicine over to the government. And we've turned the sphere of medicine over to the corporations as if we no longer have any say or part in the work of healing. Now, uh, access to medicine and access to healthcare has just become another bureaucratic nightmare. If you go to the emergency room, you're gonna, you're gonna be waiting through a mess for, for months, right? This just, it's just a nightmare. Thankfully, there are many Christian doctors and nurses and specialists and healthcare professionals who are transforming and reforming the areas where they work and where they operate. And I'm so thankful for them. I'm also thankful for those who go on medical missions, relieving the suffering of the poor in other nations. They're continuing Jesus's work of preaching the gospel and healing the sick. However, to a greater extent, the church has been content over the last century or more. We've been content to abdicate the ministry of healing to the state and, and to other interests. Just as we've abdicated education to the state, just as we've abdicated care for the elderly to the state, just as we've abdicated care for the poor and care for the orphan, we say, yeah, you want healing and, and, and physical restoration too? You can have it. That's not our job anymore, right? That, that's not our business. Our job is just to get people to think the right way and get ready for heaven. That's right. That's, that's all we got to do. That's, we're, our job is just between the ears and under the hat. And our, our job is just kind of somewhere in the chest area, just inside. And that's all the work that we have to do. We just give people a little pick-me-up a little emotional religion when they need it. We're not concerned with the physical world. We're not concerned with the physical body. And because that's not our arena, leave everything else to the, to, the, to the professionals who are sanctioned by the state. And now, as the institutions that the churches started, the, the institutions such as the universities and the publishing, the, the printing presses and the, and the hospitals, these institutions which the church started as the outworking of her mission, as they are orphaned by the church, they each and every one break down. They start to disintegrate. They start to fall apart. And society collapses with them. Things can only spin along on their own inertia for so long. Eventually, they run out of energy. And they need to be revived and renewed and reformed. And this is where we are now. This is where we are. Now is the time as the Unaffordable Care Act for example, is, is collapsing under its own weight. What better time for the church to remember who she is and rejoin Jesus in his, message, in, in, his, in his mission of preaching the gospel and healing the nations, bringing wholeness to the complete world of man, of restoring the whole man to God, of restoring man to creation, of restoring man to other people, restoring man to his family, restoring man to himself. What better time to preach a public gospel that is deeply concerned with all of the spheres of human life? 
If this happens, if, if the church takes seriously the promises that Jesus made and Isaiah made, the promises that show up in the Psalms of the restoration of the whole earth, of the, of the healing of the whole man, if the church takes this seriously, then, then just as Jesus's ministry of healing, what did it do? What, what did Jesus do when he healed? He affirmed the goodness of creation. He affirmed the unique value of human life. He affirmed his own compassion. Just as, just as Jesus did these things, so then will the church's testimony and witness to these things be restored. Now, you and I by ourselves, even all of us, if we were all on the same page, we, we couldn't change this overnight. We couldn't change the world and make this happen on our own. We're not in the same position John Calvin was when he came back to Geneva and he put the deacons in charge of the hospital. Uh, Geneva had just consolidated all of their various ministries to the sick and to the poor into one general hospital. And then when, when John Calvin got to town, he said, oh, that's the deacon's work. The deacons are in charge of the hospital because he said, this is our work. This is the church's business. And he, he put them in charge. We don't live in his context. We don't have his authority. But someday, maybe someday, it, before we can get to a place like that again, we first have to accept and agree that that's a good place to be, that that's our job, that we have to recover this emphasis and prioritize the healing of the nations as our responsibility. Now, I know when you say something like healing of the nations, you're talking about body and soul. Absolutely. You're talking about so many dimensions of which, of which bodily restoration is certainly one. This is something Jesus intends to accomplish through the work of the church. And in order for us to be, this to be a priority for us and for our children is we're going to have to encourage our young people that perhaps this is one of many ways they can serve the kingdom of God through understanding the practice of medicine so that, so that we can have mature Christians who can speak intelligently to the ethical questions presented by modern medicine that we have Christians who understand the relationship of sin to the well-being of the person, how, how destructive wickedness is on every part of us. We need Christians definitely who understand how the brain works. We need Christians who can lead us in biblically grounded mental health, Christians who understand the physical, psychological, social, and spiritual functions of human beings, and to work to bring it all under the reign of Jesus. Certainly we need Christians who speak intelligently to law and to finance and technology. Absolutely. We need Christians who speak intelligently to government and, and medicine. We, as, as, as this becomes something we think about and a priority, because I, I have to confess, it's not even, it's not even until I hit these passages one right after another, honestly, I have to confess, this hasn't been on my radar. I don't, I don't think this way. I haven't, I haven't invested a lot of time or thought into this before this week, but, but I can see that if we see our own health and our own wellness, not only as a right as Americans, you know, we, as Americans, we have a right to live pain-free, problem-free lives, right? I mean, that's just our born right. Rather, we come to understand that Jesus is the ultimate source of all healing. And it's God's life-giving spirit who is working in us. And that completeness doesn't come only by the work of medicine, though God uses many wonderful means, but wellness and completeness also comes by prayer and repentance 
and word and sacrament. It's not one thing alone that brings us completeness and wholeness. It is medicine and prayer and repentance and word and sacrament. We understand that our physical well-being is under the church. And we look to her for guidance and support. And when there's something wrong, we ask her to pray for us. And we call for the elders to come anoint us with oil. It's important to be aware of this dimension of kingdom work so that we pray and live toward this end. And we do this not just as ideologues who just wish things were different, but you know, really it's never gonna be any different. We're all just gonna kind of keep muddling along until one day the sun expands and destroys the earth and that'll be the end. No, that's not, that's not how we live and work and pray. God's word has declared that he intends to bring healing to the earth and that he will wipe disease and sickness from the face of the earth. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Jesus will reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. If you've tuned me out, I want you to hear this once again. Jesus will reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. That includes cancer. That includes, that includes immunodeficiency disorders. That includes autism. That includes mental illness. That includes depression. That includes the flu. That includes all of the weird things that happen when we live in this modern world and we eat all kinds of things maybe we never ate before. That includes all things, all things that destroy, all things that kill, all things that pull us apart. Jesus will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, Paul says. This eventually will be the result of the reign of Jesus over the earth. Death and the grave will utterly finally be defeated and will be no more. That is his promise. Now we can't shy away from it. We can't say, we can't qualify it. He will defeat death. And like every promise he's made, you can take him at his word. This is not one of those things we get our hopes up for and it turns out to be a dud. No, he's kept every one of his promises and he will keep this very bold, unflinching promise as well. He will destroy death. He will defeat death. Now, still, you and I can be sympathetic with John's question and we can say, okay, when is this really happening? Do I understand this correctly? Well, that's where we wrap it up with James's epistle in, in the little section uh, Tim read just a little while ago. If we, uh, our, our epistle reading, today comes from James 5. And what does James say to us? James says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Jesus is coming to defeat death. He has come to defeat death. He is coming to defeat death. He will come utterly and finally to defeat death. James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Isaiah talks about deserts turning into gardens. How long does something like that take? James talks about how the farmer waits for fruit to come out of the ground. How long does it take for food to come out of the ground? Five minutes? A day? Does it happen overnight? 
Does it take a whole growing season? Does it happen gradually, little by little by little, so much that you don't even see it happening until, until you look back and you say, wow, that, that was wonderful. It took a long time, but it's here. Be patient, James says. Establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble in the meantime, he says. Are you waiting for the seeds of the gospel to take root and produce fruit in the world, in your marriage, in your children, in the church? Are you waiting for the healing that Jesus brings to all peoples of the earth to come and affect the spheres that you work in and you move in? Don't get frustrated, James says. Don't doubt. Don't fear. Don't worry. He says, wait and be patient. This is a whole other sermon. And I'll stop and I'll just say this one thing. Impatience is destructive. Malcontentedness with God's pace and with God's timing is destructive. That will lead you to destroy yourself and other people. Well, Adam couldn't wait for God's timing, right? He grasped for the glory of the fruit that God had forbidden him. And he sank the world into death and sin and darkness. Abraham took a shortcut for a son. Remember that? Saul wouldn't wait for Samuel to come sacrifice. The prodigal son wouldn't wait for his, his inheritance. Satan tries to tempt Jesus to avoid the cross and just accept the kingdoms of the world by bowing down to him. That's Satan's MO. Now, Jesus didn't submit to Satan, but that's Satan's MO, to work in us such discontent, to work in us impatience so that we do something really stupid and destructive. Try to skip ahead, rush things, you know? Fornicate before you're married. Don't wait for God's plan. Go steal whatever you want. Don't work for it. Lie and break agreements. Break covenants. Don't wait for God to work things out and bless your faithful labors. Impatience is destructive and James warns against it. He says, wait, because real transformation, real reformation, turning deserts into gardens, the healing of the nations, this takes time. Be faithful in all the means that God has given you to change your world. As the verse of my favorite Advent psalm, uh, my, my favorite Advent hymn, Joy to the World, says, uh, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, people of God, he is coming. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as, for as the curse is found. Through our faithfulness and our everyday obedience and work, the kingdom comes gradually. And growing day by day in little ways, it comes. Don't get impatient. Settle into God's program for the healing of the nations through your work. Hear Jesus' answer to John and look at what he is doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to, again, reshape and reform our hearts to see the things that you are doing, the things you pointed John to through your son, Jesus, the things that you have pointed us to today in Isaiah and the Psalm and in, in the gospel. Help us to see the great and mighty works that you are accomplishing in the world. And may we join you by prayer and faithfulness. Fill us with your spirit that we may join in this work of the healing of the nations. We ourselves need to be healed first. So Father, uh, change us and transform us and fix what is broken in us so that we can be agents of healing uh, to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.